Welcome to all of you. It's, I was thinking as we were uh, singing here that uh, we're, we're learning how to appreciate what we have because sometimes we lose it. It's fun to come back into worship, fun to be together, and uh, important. And welcome to those joining us, one of the campuses or a small group or wherever. So I had to look up these numbers because I didn't really believe that they were true, but uh, a couple years ago, the multi-state lottery called Powerball, the jackpot grew to $1.58 billion. So your $2 ticket could win you over a billion and a half dollars. Now, the odds were one in 260 million which are roughly the same odds that today you will be struck by a meteor and killed. So they're not really high, but it was only $2. So lots of people were buying tickets. And I remember seeing this long line out in front of a little store that was, you know, that was selling lottery tickets. And the line went around the store and, and there was a news reporter who was interviewing uh, a clerk who was working selling the, the Powerball tickets and asked, what, what, so what's going on here? Like, what are you doing? And very, I thought, very insightfully, the, uh, the clerk said, we're selling hope. We're selling hope. Now, I want to say, if you can buy hope for $2, that would be a good deal. If the odds are 260 million to one, not such a good deal. And for the record, hope is available for free. <laughs> in Christ. So uh, Paul will write to Timothy about the blessed hope. Peter will write about a living hope. And, and our study in Revelation 4 sort of picks up on the idea of hope. Uh, and so uh, hope in Christ, hope in light of eternity, hope is available. We need it. We know that. And we're looking at it today. So uh, we're in Revelation chapter 4. This is a, a deeply disturbing, deeply devotional picture book that we have been in, uh, often misunderstood. And I keep saying, think forest, not trees. There's a big picture here, and it's a win. So uh, I think we can uh, get a lot of energy out of the book of Revelation if we know what it is that we are uh, supposed to be paying attention to. So. It's a vision uh, when we started last week. So I, I was commenting. I, went, I took us to Revelation chapter 4 to comment about the need to have our bearings uh, grounded, not in the political moment, whatever that was for you, but in Christ, right? A vision of Christ in heaven. And so, so in Revelation chapter 4, uh, John, the apostle, goes up to heaven. So he see, he's in heaven. He sees Jesus in heaven, in power, the Jesus of Revelation 1. And then also, uh, he gets to look at the things that are going to unfold. So he sort of gets this, this God's perspective on what is happening. And many would argue that Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 is the, is the linchpin of the book. You have to understand, you have to keep coming back to that passage to understand what's going on. And if we get that vision, if we understand what we're being told, then we ought to have a lot of hope. Now let me say something to, to three of you who might doubt this right now. Three groups of you might doubt this. Some of you say, honestly, <laughs> I, 
I just don't need a vision right now. Like I need some reality. I need my kids in school. <laughs> I need, I need, uh, I, I want to, I want to be able to go to a restaurant. I want, I want to be able to go to a football game and sit in the stands, right? I mean, I, I'm looking for some, I'm looking for us to turn some corners here. And so you're not all that animated by a promise of better things to come. So I want to say to you, uh, you're not doing it right then because the, the promise of what is to come ought to change how you live and think right now. This, this vision that we get is supposed to be a vision that fundamentally changes how we feel about this particular moment. Think how helpful it is when you know how a game is gonna turn out because you know the ending score and now you're watching the, you're watching the tape. I have a friend, uh, older gentleman. He's now uh, at the age at which he doesn't feel like it's a good idea for him to watch his football team play unless he knows how the game is going to end. So it's just understood. He's going to tape it. You don't talk to him about it. He doesn't want to know any individual plays. He just wants to know at the end. He wants to know whether they won or lost. Then he can sort of, you know, watch this without being... Uh, a possible cardiac arrest statistic. So uh, if you know how it's gonna turn out, then you can navigate this differently. And, uh, and I think that that is part of what we get. We know, remember, this, this, this book is being written in particular to people who are suffering. So the, the, the book is written to these seven churches. And one of the first objectives of doing any kind of Bible study is to figure out what the original writers intended the original reader to understand and to put yourself into the place of that original reader. And these original readers are suffering and they have been told they're going to suffer some more. And so while the attribute of God that is, that is highlighted most of all throughout the Bible would be his holiness, when it comes to the book of Revelation, the attribute of God that is highlighted the most is not his holiness. It's his sovereignty. It's his providence. It's the assurance that he's got things under control and that, that he will win. And so what these people need to hear is, yes, it's hard. Yes, you're suffering. Yes, you're, you're frustrated. And it's actually the, 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 the other team is going to run up the score and it's going to look even worse for a while. But you're on the winning team. And so, so when you know that, like you can navigate your own emotions differently. When you have that hope, that certitude, God wins, he told me it was gonna get rough, and it's getting rough, okay, but I know that God wins. I'm not, um, <clears throat> I'm not much of a science fiction fan, but uh, the, the science fiction books that I like are those that uh, have this little pivot at some point and you realize uh, that you have been in a side alley the whole time. What, what you're learning is that there's this much bigger universe out there and that, that you've been part of a small story off in the, in, in the backwaters. Uh, your, your whole universe is just, you know, life that's growing on a leaf in a puddle in, in, the, in some other grander scheme of things. Because then 
because I think that's part of what we need to keep reminding ourselves of. Like, this is real. This matters. Everything about your life matters. Everything about you matters. But it's not ultimate. And there is a bigger narrative out there. And we need to be shaped by that bigger narrative. There is, eternity changes everything. And so we've got to have this perspective, which we are given. You are given. If you lack hope, you're not looking in the right places. We are being assured. This ends well. It's playing out in the way that makes best sense to a God who understands things and is working this out in light of eternity. And so, uh, we, first of all, I want to say to those of you who, who say, I actually am not finding all that much hope in this vision, I want to say, then you're doing it wrong. Secondly, I want to say to those of you who say, well, my issue is I'm not certain that I actually believe in heaven. Okay? So, if you're a Christ follower, then you signed up to believe in heaven. Because if you're a Christ follower, you signed up to say, I believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. He knows better than I do. He is God. And when we look at what Jesus is teaching us and what Jesus is saying, he claims that he came from heaven. He claimed he was going back to heaven. He claimed he was going to heaven in order to prepare a place to bring us. And, and Paul will talk about him in 1 Corinthians 15 as the man from heaven. You cannot understand the, the Christian life, it does not make any sense except in light of eternity. And Jesus talks about this kingdom of another world, the, the whole, it's clear. If you're going to follow Jesus, it's not because of what you're going to see in this, this side of the grave. <laughs> if all you see, if all there is is what we see, then you do not want to be a Christ follower. Because what you sign up for is to go to the end of the line. You sign up to put other people's needs first. You sign up to be about others. You sign up about, about another kingdom, another life. You're saying, I'm going to live today in light of the fact that I'm going to live forever. I'm going to live today in light of the fact that I am a steward of everything that I've been given. And I will stand accountable before the God who ultimately owns it all to offer an account of how I stewarded the stuff that was his. And he's clear about his values. Love others, love your enemy, serve, go to the end of the line, be humble. And so if you, if you believe in Jesus, if you're signing up for Jesus, then heaven is part of that. You cannot divide those two things. So now, so now let me say something to those of you who may not believe in Jesus. So this is, a, this, this is where it, it pivots. <laughs> and can't every time we get here sort of rehearse Jesus and his claims and the reasons to believe that Jesus is who he said to be. So let me just say that if you find yourself skeptical about Jesus, I have not been since COVID. I stopped doing this skeptic study that I've been doing. It's six weeks long and, and, and it's for people who are not sure they believe or who say they believe but are not really sure what they're saying they believe. And uh, so I'll just say if you're interested in that, if that's your issue, if that's your question, you, you really have got to work this out. And you're up for Zoom studies because uh, that's where we're at right now. Uh, then send me an email. So I think we're going to put my email on the screen. Send me an email if you're up for that uh, Zoom study. Uh, we will rehearse that because that is where we have to be and have to start. So um, 
In light of all that, uh, I want to say, when we get to Revelation chapter 4, what we are looking at is this vision that is supposed to shape us. And, and what we see in this vision is a whole lot about worship. And we have to, uh, we have to understand that we are, we are really given a, a bit of a tutorial here. Some would say that the, if you really want to learn about worship, you go to Psalm, the book of Psalms. And yes, there's a lot in the Psalms about how to worship. And there's, it's, it's, it's sort of on display for us. But probably the key place to go if you want to understand worship would be Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. And uh, John is one of, we think, two people who get called up and get a glimpse of heaven. The other is Paul. He writes about this in 2 Corinthians, that he knows a man. He's talking about himself. I know a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. He doesn't know. He gets called up into the third heaven, and he sees things too sacred for words. So he cannot describe them. And Paul will say that he's got this thorn in the flesh in part because just to sort of stay grounded because of what he saw, to sort of have any sense of balance, he's got he's to be weighted down. So Paul is one and John is the other. And, and uh, John is, so that's, that's the whole book of Revelation. He's, you know, he gets called up and initially he's given the, responsibility of writing, taking dictation from Jesus, writing these letters to these seven churches. That's what we went through. Then in, in chapter four, he gets called further up and he gets to look and, and this is the perspective. And so then he writes this, <laughs> he writes, and here's, here's the bad news. Okay, so he, he writes, Revelation chapters one through three, pretty easy to unpack. Revelations chapter four, to 22, really, really confusing. So it's this big vision. But it's not just a vision, it's like lots of side visions, and at various times, you sort of jump ahead, and then at other times, the vision takes you back, and you sort of got cameo appearances and all kinds of things. It's like a really complicated, uh, sort of very artsy film, where you're like, Okay, I, 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 gotta re I gotta watch that again because I think I missed everything. Like, oh, that was what that was? Oh, I didn't get that, yes. So that's the book of Revelation. It's complicated. Uh, I keep saying, focus on the forest, not the trees. And when we focus on the forest, not the trees, we can make sense of this. By the way, I do feel sorry for John because I think he gets an, an impossible assignment. And I think we see people um, write and use the kind of symbolism that John uses in other settings when they are completely overwhelmed. So um, there are five writers, very prominent, successful writers. I'm thinking of Tolkien, Lewis, uh, Golding, um, uh, Vonnegut, and there was one other, oh, George Orwell. So all of these men were profoundly shaped by their experience in war. And they all write books about war, but they can't, they can't write about their experiences, and they can't even really write nonfiction about it. So Tolkien, who has trench fever, almost dies in World War I, uh, he writes Lord of the Rings, an epic struggle of good versus evil, right? Perhaps the epic struggle of good versus evil. But it's got 
orcs and hobbits and all other kinds of things. It's all set in Middle Earth. <laughs> and then Lewis, who is shot, left for dead on the battle field in World War I, takes months to convalesce and get better. He writes a story of good versus evil. And it takes place in Narnia, where the animals talk. And then uh, Freiling, who uh, is injured, uh, uh, he, uh, his leg is gravely, somehow profoundly injured. He almost dies from a leg wound uh, in World War II. And he's going to write uh, Lord of the Flies. So he's going to write about evil. Freiling will say that uh, it was clear to him, um, no, that, excuse me, that's Orwell. Freiling will, will almost die, Lord of the Flies. By the way, in case you've missed this, Lord of the Flies is a, is a reference to Satan. Beelzebub, it's a literal translation of Beelzebub, one of the names for Satan. Uh, and it means, it translates Lord of the Flies. And so he writes about these boys, you know, it's a, it's a sort of a, it's, it's a bunch of choir boys on an island and evil plays out. And then you got George Orwell. And Orwell is there at the sinking of the Bismarck. And he said he learned in World War II that people make evil like bees make honey. And uh, so he writes about evil, and it's in with animals, you know, talking pigs, four legs bad, two, le or two legs bad, four legs bad, good. And, it, and then you've got, uh, you've got Vonnegut, who writes Slaughterhouse-Five. He's the, one of the very few people to survive the bombing of Dresden. And I don't know what category to put Slaughterhouse-Five. I read it a couple times, fascinating book, but clearly it's, it's a work of some sort of science fiction. Uh, it's a work of fiction. None of them are able to write directly about what they, what they experienced. They have to write about it in, in sort of symbolic terms. And that's what we get in the book of Revelation. Paul says, the things I saw were too sacred to put into words. John is given the assignment of writing down what he sees. And so we get this very uh, interesting, uh, very uh, confusing book. So we're in Revelation chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door, uh, and, and, and it opened into heaven. So after this, this is after the seven letters that he wrote um, to the churches in, um, in Asia Minor. And the voice I had heard, I had first heard, so this is Jesus, first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, I will show you what must take place after this. So um, this is where we were last week uh, in this sermon on uh, politics and, and looking at Jesus, the importance of, of seeing Jesus and seeing what Jesus sees. Verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit, uh, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So the throne of heaven is, is, is the epicenter of the universe, right? There is no more significant spot anywhere than the throne of heaven where God manifests his presence in the most profound way. This is also, by the way, a bit of a, a, bit of a dig uh, at Caesar because he had a throne and he considered his throne to be the ultimate uh, epicenter of everything. And clearly uh, it's not. Now, one other thing to just note here. <laughs> so John doesn't describe God at all. I mean, well, he's going to describe a little bit, but it's, he says, 
there's the throne. And he says, and someone was sitting on it. But he doesn't tell us who's sitting on it, right? Someone, someone was sitting on the throne. And then what he says next is, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. Okay, well, that's not really very helpful. So jasper uh, is a stone, ruby. Uh, the, the, the ruby here, some would translate this uh, with the, the term cornelia. So it's a, it's a red deep red uh, ruby, and jasper. Later on, the same word that's used here for jasper, because we, we have a jasper, but the word that's used here for, for jasper is used in Revelation 21, I believe, and it's, cl it's clear. You can see through it. So that's, you can't see through the jasper that we have. So we don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to say. There's the throne of God, and somebody's sitting on it. Yeah, he's not even going to try. And then he goes, okay, well, it sort of looked like two rocks. Okay, well, that's helpful. And then uh, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Okay, so emeralds are green. Rainbows are multicolored. Uh, not sure what to do with the green rainbow that is circling the throne, how that even works. Uh, I guess we think back, this is the last book of the Bible, we think back to the first book and the covenant that God makes. Uh, with Noah, the covenant of grace, the sign is going to be a rainbow uh, to remind us of God's um, promises to us. Verse 4, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seating on them were, were 24 elders. Now, <laughs> if you have like a lot of time to kill and you're wondering, how am I going to spend the next, I don't know, three weeks? You could read interpretations of the book of Revelation. So, what are the 24, why 24 elders? Like, the number of suggestions that have been made over the last 2,000 years <laughs> is more than 24. Let me just say that. So, I think the one that makes the most sense to me is that you've got the 12 You've got 12 patriarchs that give us the 12 tribes of Israel. And then you've got the 12 apostles who are, of course, sort of, you know, that's, that's not a mistake that you have 12, the 12 uh, tribes being replaced by the 12 apostles, the, the Old Testament people of God being replaced, the New Testament people of God. But basically, you're saying, okay, well, we've got... Uh, everything. We've got the leaders of all, all that's going on, the Old and New Testament. They were dressed in white, so white would be symbolic of holiness. They have been glorified. So, so we, at this point in the game, you, you place your faith in Christ, you are justified. That means you're forgiven. But, and we are working on the process of being sanctified, of becoming better, Ultimately, when we die, we are glorified so that our sanctification is completed and we become, uh, we become righteous. We're not just declared righteous by the blood of Christ. So they're white, they're holy. Uh, crowns, they had crowns of gold on their heads. The crowns represent, they're victorious. They have, they have conquered. Um, and then verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning uh, and rumbles and peals of thunder, probably a throwback uh, to the second book of the Bible, to the book of Exodus, when God showed up and, and when he manifested himself, it was overwhelming sounds like lightning and thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. Seven is the number of 
com completeness and perfection. Seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. So, Lots of speculation about sea. And at the end of the book of Revelation, it seems to be a, a different understanding of sea because uh, sea, the Jews didn't like water. And so in, in Re, when, when, when John at the end of the book of Revelation is saying, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And behold, the next thing he says, behold, there is no sea. Which, if you like sailing, you're sort of like, Really? No sea. Okay. That's a little bit disappointing. I'm sure you'll make it up, but okay. Uh, but the, the point here is the Jews aren't really water people. There are exceptions. I mean, the fishermen, and, but for the most part, uh, all their enemies are the ones that do ships and, and, and sail. The Jews don't do that. And so water and white water and all that is sort of signs of trouble. But here, uh, something else is going on, and it's, so it's a sea that's clear. In the center, uh, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with their eyes in front and in the back. Uh, the first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. So this image uh, harkens back to an image uh, that, of, that Ezekiel has of, of the throne of God and what's going on there. Probably four different types of living creatures suggests uh, everything, all of life. So we've got this, uh, again, think forest, not trees. What we've got is glory, power, everything. Everything is gathered around the throne. And, 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 and God is beyond any kind of description. Each of the living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under their wings. Um, so this goes back to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted. And then he talks about the seraphs that had six wings. And with two, they covered their eyes. And with two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. So, okay, we have six, we have these six-winged creatures. Um, uh, day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So again, holiness is the premier, in some ways, the premier quality of God. It's the only attribute of God that we ever see elevated to the third level. And I've, I've said that in the Greek and Hebrew, when you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. Truly, truly, I say to you, right, this is really true. The only two things get repeated, I think, two things get repeated three times. One is the number six, which is imperfect, so imperfection multiplied to the ultimate power. The other is holiness of God, holy, holy, holy. And, uh, and then with, there's this celebration here of, of God's sort of eternality. He, uh, he was, by the way, we're... We're immortal, so we had a beginning. We're not eternal. That we, you know, we don't. We we started at a certain point in time. God is eternal. He goes from eternity past, eternity present. We will live forever, so we will we will live on the other side of death. So we're immortal, but we're not eternal. God is eternal, and so He says, "Who was and is." So He's the same. But then, interestingly, it doesn't say, and will be, which would be the parallel. So God 
was, he is, and he will be. But it doesn't say that. It says who was and is and is to come. Emphasizing yet again his return. He will return. He will return in power. He will return uh, in strength. And, um, and so holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is, and is to come. By the way, so Domitian, who is uh, emperor at this time, and he's a particularly evil emperor. Very, he was killing people, torturing people, lighting them on fire, all kinds, I mean, you know, skinning them alive, all kinds. The, the persecution that the Christians endured under Domitian is, is probably at, at the worst. So he required people to call him Lord and God. Uh, so it was, uh, it was either uh, in Latin, it was Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. In Greek, it was, uh, it was Kyrios kai theos. Uh, so you had to call him Lord and God. And so, uh, again, the, all these things that they're used to hearing, Jesus is it, it's, it's being ascribed to Christ in a completely more powerful way. So... Um, Everyone is declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Uh, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by you will they, uh, they were created and have their being. So, uh, by the way, this is, so it's sort of ascribing glory to God in one sense because he is the creator. And uh, I personally find when I'm in need of... Uh, a little encouragement and more perspective that it helps to uh, sort of take Psalm 19 more literally. Psalm 19 is when we consider the, the heavens, you know, the handiwork of God. Uh, it, it, they're all declaring God's glory. And so I, I, I can really, um, again, be encouraged when I sort of open up some uh, some planetarium book or Google something to just say, so how long does it take uh, the Milky Way, which is a spiral, to pivot on its axis? I looked it up. 250 million years for the, for the Milky Way to, uh, to make one revolution. And uh, how far is it from one end of our galaxy to the next? Um, so I, I wrote this down because, uh, I, again, I don't trust myself with these numbers. 600,000 trillion miles. <laughs> That's just from one side of the galaxy to the next. 600,000 trillion miles. And there's all, I mean, there's billions and billions and trillions of galaxies. And they're all different shapes and sizes. Ours is a spiral, some are a box, some are a pancake. Some are, I mean, there's so much space and creativity and brilliance out there. And uh, they were created by God who sustains them. They're not just created, but they're held together. He, he holds everything together right now. You, you created all things and all, thing, and all things have their being in you. He continues to hold it all together. So uh, we get this incredible picture here. And um, I just want to, I, I just, 
I, I just want to point out the obvious here. What we are being given is a tutorial on worship. And I want to say to you, um, if we were to just sort of look at this, we would see that, um, okay, we're to worship God alone and we're to focus on his attributes and we're not to grow tired. They continued, you know, forever and ever. They're saying, holy, holy, holy. Uh, probably we could say worship is best done with others and there's some singing involved. There's like five different hymns that get woven into the book of Revelation. So there's some attributes of, of um, there's, some, there's some aspects of worship that we can pick up from this book. Uh, I want to suggest that um, we need to understand that worship is a is, the, is what we were created to do and worship in many ways solves the problems that we face and that, and that when things aren't working, what we're really doing is not worshiping. And, and we've got to think about uh, how this works. So worship is the answer to the big questions that you have. And worship is an answer to, the, to understanding history. I, I've been doing this history podcast for a few months now, and I, I did it in part because I think lots of Christians really don't know much between the Apostle Paul and Billy Graham, and there's remarkably a lot of things that happened in there that you probably ought to know about. But also I want people to see that we're headed somewhere. Like, history has a, an ending. It has a culmination. It has a climax that is coming. And, and we need to understand what we're part of. And all of this is really shaped by worship. Worship uh, is the answer to the big questions. It's the axis mundi. It's the center around which everything pivots. And so I just want to um, tease this out in, in one way for you. And, and I've done this in different ways in the past, but it seems like there's an opportunity today to do it again. So let me note, um, you worship. Everybody worships. Everybody worships something. You cannot not worship. The question is not, are you going to worship? We're never, we're never commanded to worship. We're never commanded to worship. We're never told to worship. We are told to worship God. Because we worship. So today, Sunday, lots of people will worship at big cathedrals, mostly on TV these days. The cathedrals are pretty empty. But when people ask me, what's the, what's the biggest church in Chicago? I always say, Soldier Field. More people worshiping at Soldier Field uh, every Sunday than any other church in Chicago. And people are there all week. They've read the sacred text, right? the scouting reports, and the coaches, uh, the journals. And, and they're, they're tracking everything. And then on the day of the game, don't stand in front of the TV, right? And, and they're, they're cheering, and they're singing, and you stand up and down, and you raise your hands, right? It's, it's worship. It's, it, that, that's what worship looks like. There was a, an article in the 80s written by, uh, by Thomas Wolfe, the novelist, Bonfire of the Vanities and other books. And, and he wrote a book, 
or excuse me, wrote this article in uh, Harper's in which he said, the elite today uh, worship art. And he made this case in that uh, the, all, these, uh, all these mansions that were built at the turn of the century in, in, in and around New York all had uh, a chapel in them. All these big homes had chapels in them. He goes, all these chapels now are filled with art. And when you go into one of these, one of these art rooms, you're expected to be reverent and quiet. And he says, the people now, they don't leave their money to churches or to missions. They leave it to the Metropolitan Museums. And it's, it is art that you are expected to worship. Uh, can make a case that we worship sex, make a case that we worship celebrities, make a case that we worship nature. I was listening to an interview, uh, a talk show. They were, they were talking about the environment and they were talking about um, rivers. And this person kept talking about the rights of the river. And it was, initially it was sort of interesting to hear her talk about the rights of the river, but it got, it sort of freaked me out a little bit because at some point it's like, you're talking about the river as if the river is alive and has particular rights. But of course, that, that is a view. Right. There, is a, there is a paganism, there is a deification of nature that we see. There is worship of nature. And then a couple weeks ago, um, Brooks, the, uh, the, the uh, columnist for the New York Times, had an article in which he talked about, the, which he suggested the reason this particular political cycle has been so... Um, uh, so contentious is because for many people, he said, uh, politics has become the new religion. It is what defines us. It is where we get our values. It is where we find our hope. And so he compares, uh, he compared what he called uh, Trumpism versus wokeism. And he said, these are secular religions at, at a level in which they have a binary logic of good and evil, a membership experience, they provide you with a deep sense of moral superiority and utopian visions, witch trials, and excommunication of the impure. He went on and he named bishops and priests on each side. Uh, and his suggestion is that we are letting this get out of hand. And I, I don't subscribe to what he's saying uh, across the board, but I have been saying, I preached two messages saying, look, I'm, I'm going to talk about the... Uh, election and about politics by telling you that it's not all important. And I'm going to say to you again, right, that you've got to have your focus on Jesus. You've got to see your life through Christ, not through a political dynamic. And, and it's not that politics doesn't matter. It matters, absolutely. But it doesn't matter as much as God and the kingdom of God. And if you, are, if you are being shaped more by your politics than by your faith, if your faith is being shaped by your politics as opposed to your politics being shaped by your faith, you are fundamentally doing it wrong. And you will not find hope in an image of Christ who rules and reigns over everything. So... <clears throat> You were made to worship. You are going to worship. 
something is going to fill you, is going to drive you, is going to shape you, is going to, is going to, is going to craft your mood. The book of Revelation says it needs to be the risen triumphant Jesus. You need to be shaped by Jesus. You need to worship Jesus. This book is deeply disturbing as well as deeply devotional. It's disturbing because of all the images in there, the, the dragons and the death and the, and the pain. It's also disturbing because of how unsettling it is to say it's easy for us to look in the wrong direction. After all the symbols are analyzed, after all the sulfurous smoke sort of settles out, we find ourselves in the presence of a holy God too holy to be described. That needs to shape us. So next week, Revelation chapter 5, we're going to see uh, how heaven looks at Jesus. And it is shocking. So let me pray for us. Lord God, uh, we want to be shaped by you. We want to be, we want our, our, our disposition uh, our attitude to be fundamentally uh, formed by our vision of you, by the promises that you have made. We want to, uh, in the midst of a broken world that where so many things are going wrong, Lord God, we want to be people of hope and joy because uh, we know uh, how this ends. So guide us to that end, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.